Our scripture passage this morning for the message is from the book of Psalms. Uh, David, Psalm 138, uh, eight verses. Uh, we'll be looking at that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, whether it's um, an analog version or a digital version, um, if you turn there and follow along as I read from the English Standard Version translation. The word of the living God. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we would ask for your Holy Spirit to be the one who instructs and teaches us from your word. We would pray that even together the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that your word would do its precious and necessary work in us and with us, that it would never return into you void even as you have promised. And we would ask, as those who are listening to the word of the living God, that by hearing and listening and understanding, receiving, appropriating, taking your word into our lives, uh, we might prove to be, as followers of Jesus Christ, both salt and light to a world that so desperately needs to hear the message of your Son. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'm going to ask you if you remember the movie The Sixth Sense. Now what was unusual about that movie was that uh, the end of the movie changed every perspective about the earlier part of the movie. That is to say, you didn't really quite understand what the story was all about as this psychiatrist is working with this young child and trying to help him sort through the young child's issues because he saw dead people. And then the psychiatrist realized he was also working through some of his own issues. If you've seen the movie, you know what revelation at the end of the movie made everything earlier in the movie now make sense. And you'll understand all of the clues that you missed that were presented through the movie. Look it up if you haven't seen it. No better than that. Watch the movie. Highly acclaimed, highly nominated for Oscar awards back in uh, 1999, year 2000. Or think of this. Uh, the Agatha Christie book turned into a movie. Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, all these things happen on this train. The Orient Express is an Eastern European train that... Uh, travels, and the, the Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot, uh, is the one who is going to solve this incredible murder mystery. And everything that happens that you watch or everything that happens that you've read doesn't become clear until the pieces are put together by Poirot and his tiny little gray cells in his brain, that wonderful brain that could see everything and put everything together. Now, the point of calling these things to your attention 
is that the Old Testament story is in many ways a chapter after chapter of a kind of mystery that God presents his story in history, redemptive history, that doesn't become clear as to what all of this stuff that happens prior means until the great chapter occurs, the chapter that we celebrate in the coming of Christ, inclusive of both Christmas and the cross. Now, once we see Christ here, once we see what Christ has come to do, then everything that has come before becomes increasingly clear. Which is another way of saying that the key to understanding all of the scriptures is Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul refers to God's revelation in the Old Testament as a mystery. Uh, The Apostle Peter refers to the fact that prophets themselves were declaring what the Spirit of Christ in them was declaring, but they understood that they didn't have the full picture, they didn't have the uh, full story, and it even says in the New Testament that these were things that angels longed to look into because nothing became fully clear until the Son of Righteousness rose with healing in his wings. When Jesus Christ came, then God's story, the great mystery, was finally solved and resolved. Now, what does that tell us for our Bible reading? It tells us this, that once you know that Christ has come, you can now read from Genesis to the last chapter of Malachi and all of the scriptures from the perspective of knowing what the answer to the mystery is. Meaning you now read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. Now I want to tell you the practical value of that. The book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, although it has many passages in it that you would call prophetic passages, it has even more passages that aren't specifically prophetic per se. Uh, There are laments, uh, times of sadness. There are great times of praise. There are psalms of confession. Uh, There are psalms that are psalms of thanksgiving. But the point of understanding how the story and the whole message is actually made clear in the final chapter concerning Christ is this. As Christians who know Jesus Christ, we now are entitled, authorized, even as it were commanded to read the worship book of the Bible, the book of Psalms the primary place where the people of God in all ages have come to find expression of their heart's worship. We are now required and entitled and authorized and privileged to read those psalms in light of God's revelation in Christ. Which is to say that if you take David as the principal author of many, many of those psalms, we can essentially say this, that David's experience with God in terms of promises and teachings and comfort and strengthening. All the ways in which David wrote of God, all the ways in which David experienced God, all the ways in which God's grace worked in the life of David, we can read this, we can appropriate this, we can properly translate this as true of us in terms of our relationship with Christ. And this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at Psalm 138, a psalm of David, and I want us to appropriate, properly so, because of Christ, the experiences that David confesses and teaches and professes here, the truths that he enunciates, the things that he talks about. I want us to be able to see that those things that David knew and understood are also for us as Christians, that we find these things in Christ. And to read Psalm 138, to look at its three principal parts and to see those things true for David in his relationship with God are true for us in our relationship with Christ to 
to read this psalm because the mystery of all of Scripture has been solved for us in Christ. So I want you to think about this. The main thing I want you to get this morning is sum it up in this way. I want you to desire to have in Christ what David so clearly had in God. I want you to desire of Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus all the things which we see that David had of God and through God and in God. I want you to read and appropriate this psalm in and through Jesus Christ. Now, as an outline, there are three basic things I want us to desire, I want us to have, I want us to possess. In the first three verses, I would want us to essentially appropriate this, a praying heart that is devoted to Christ. A praying heart that is devoted to Christ. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, I would want us to have in Christ again the strongest confidence that Christ will be exalted in this world. The strongest confidence that this world belongs to Christ and He will be exalted in this world. And then thirdly, even as David experienced this with God, that you would have a complete trust that Christ cares personally and particularly for you in all of the troubles of life. What David experienced with God, it is our privilege, it is our entitlement, it is what Christ himself wants us to experience in our relationship with him. So this first thought, verses 1 through 3, read these verses again. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me, you answered me, you gave me strength of soul. My strength of soul you increased. Verses 1 through 3 points to a heart devoted to Christ. Now, the first thing we see here is that this heart devoted to Christ is a praying heart that is oriented toward worship. Uh, we see this in the several acts of worship prayers that, that David records here. Uh, there was the giving of thanks mentioned twice. There's the singing of praise. There's even the posture of his body in terms of bowing down. We see that David does these things with his whole heart. So David's example should instruct us how we ought to love Christ, uh, how we ought to be attracted to Christ, how we ought to honor Christ, how we should relate to Christ, how we should pray to Christ, how we should desire deeply to have a heart that's devoted to Christ in prayer and worship. I don't remember who it was that I read, but this goes back a long time ago as a great Christian writer talking about thanksgiving, giving of thanks, gratitude. And this is essentially what he said. A day should not go by for us as Christians that we do not thank Christ for our salvation, for the work of the cross. A day should not go by that we are not thanking Christ for who he is the Savior and the Redeemer and what he has done, died in our place upon the cross to bring us forgiveness of sins. The, the point is, the writer was saying, that if we are Christians, every day we have something quite concrete to be thankful for, that we have, because of what Jesus has done, everlasting life in him. So no matter, how hard, no matter how hard your circumstances might be, no matter how difficult things are, we can, as the psalmist says in another place, I will praise 
the Lord at all times. We always have reason to praise and thank God because of what Christ has done for us. Now also, looking at verse 3, we see that this heart that is devoted toward Christ is a heart that prays for the help of Christ. Prays for the help of Christ. On the day that I called, it says, you answered and you gave strength to my soul. You made me bold in my soul. You, you gave me boldness. You, you answered my prayer out of the fearfulness that I was experiencing and you gave me what I needed. You gave me stout-heartedness. You gave me courage. You gave me boldness. Now, this reminds us of something that Jesus taught that is so critical. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. I spend a fair amount of time at Rosewood which is a senior living establishment. Uh, maybe it's one of the best in Bakersfield. I don't know. But I know it has its three-tiered approach uh, to working with elderly people. Uh, tier one is called independent living. Uh, people go to Rosewood and they live rather independently. That is to say they have their apartment and what Rosewood provides uh, and the upkeep of those apartments uh, outside, but if you're living there, you take care of the inside. You, you know, you do your own uh, dusting and cleaning, and you have a little kitchenette if you want to prepare snacks and things like that. And you take your meals together because they have a big cafeteria kind of place. But it's independent living. Uh, the second tier is essentially called assisted living. Uh, meaning you're not quite capable to live on your own. So when you're in assisted living, uh, the personnel and the staff there, they come around and check on you regularly. Uh, they want to make sure that you get out of bed in the mornings. They want to make sure that you get dressed, you brush your teeth, you take a bath. They want to make sure you get to the meal times to eat. They watch over your medications, uh, make sure that all those things are happening. Uh, they constantly assist you in living. You do some things on your own, and you can do some things on your own, but they assist you. And then the third level is really dependent or critical care, meaning you can't live on your own, really, at all. You need regular and constant supervision. Uh, you don't remember to take your meds. They bring your meds to you. You don't remember to take a shower or a bath. They come along and make sure they do it for you. Uh, you won't get out of bed often unless they come and get you out of bed. It's, it's constant care. Now, when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, does he mean that you're a Christian now? It's all independent living. He's there if you need him. Or you're a Christian now, and he's there to assist you from time to time to do the things you can't do. Or did Jesus mean that it's critical care? It's a constant supervision of your life. It's bringing to you again and again everything you truly need. Because apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. The Christian life cannot be lived except in complete dependence upon Christ. We try the independent living. Things go south. We try the assisted living. I'll call on you, Jesus, when I need you. That's not a lot of fun. Because things will overwhelm us and then we feel embarrassed that, oh yeah, I'm in trouble, I've got to call on Jesus again. The proper design for your life as a Christian is grounded in the idea that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And the promise, now just like David experienced this promise, on the day that I called you, you answered me and delivered me. 
We need Jesus constantly. And that's why the psalm begins with talking about a heart that's wholeheartedly involved in prayer and devotion to Christ. Your greatest acts of glorifying God, He responds to you in His all-sufficient ways of taking care of you because He is your greatest need and He is your all-sufficient provision. Now, the, the second uh, thing that we find in this psalm is all about um, David's understanding of the world, but we translate this in for us as Christians, and it's to be a Christian's understanding of the world, and we can state it this way. Uh, Christ desires for us to have the strongest confidence that he will be exalted in this world. Uh, look what it says in verses 4, 5, and 6. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now, the big idea that's being expressed here is that Christ will have his exaltation, and Christ will have his glory, and Christ will have his honor by all the kings of the earth. Uh, even the greatest of the world are going to be brought to a place and practice of worshiping Christ. And of course, when it speaks of the kings, it's speaking of the kings even as representatives of the nations. Now, look, first of all, did David see this in his day? No. David didn't see this. This is not David expressing something that he could evidentially see throughout the world. He lived in the world in which almost every nation had aligned itself against the true and living God. Now, after all, what David understood here is grounded in what was prophetic. Remember Psalm 2, uh, a prophecy of David himself. In Psalm 2, beginning at verse 7, David has written these words which apply to Christ prophetically. This is Christ speaking in this psalm. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, meaning God said to me, the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son so he will not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That phrase, do homage to the Son, is literally translated. Kiss the Son. Lest he become angry. And his wrath flare up in a moment. Now, the confidence that we find that Christ is going to rule over all the kings of the earth is grounded in the Abrahamic promise way back, a thousand years before David, 2,000 years before Christ, when God spoke to Abraham and said, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, the seed being Christ. And how shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? Well, the Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all of the nations. Christ's last commandment to his people. But we find in the book of Revelation how this is ultimately going to be fulfilled. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. We have angelic voices expressing these thoughts. And they sang a new song, saying... And this is a song to Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The ransomed of God shall be kings upon the earth. They shall reign upon the earth. Now, how exactly that's going to take place, um, I can tell you that I don't know. I can tell you there are people who dogmatically think they know. <laughs> Lots of them out there, and they disagree with one another. Meaning it's still part of what is yet to come that we haven't yet seen. David didn't see it in his day. He was confident it was going to happen. We don't necessarily, we don't see it in this day, but we are confident it's going to happen. We're confident that it's going to be true that at some time Christ is going to be lifted up and exalted by all the great ones of this world because there's going to come a time when the redeemed of the Lord shall themselves become those who are kings who reign over this world. Now again, exactly what form or shape that's going to take place. Um, we are not spiritual Hercule Poirots who can actually figure this out. But it's a promise and you and I as Christians need to have the greatest confidence that no matter how this world seems to be now, God will fulfill his promise to see that his son will be honored throughout this world. Which then, it's a phrase I never use, but I'll use it now. What is the right side of history? <laughs> the right side of history is God's side of history. And the right side of history will be the crowning coronation of Christ in all of his glory when all the kings of this world will acknowledge who Jesus is. The name above every other name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Now, how this is going to take place, I don't really know, but I do know that there's a verse here that tells us, verse 6, it's going to happen according to God's justice and mercy because there God reminds us, verse 6, if you look at it, he's the God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Though the Lord God is on high, yet he looks upon the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now, lastly, verses 7 and 8. What's our orientation in terms of, of Christ? What, what does Christ want for us? Out of verses 7 and 8, he desires of us a complete trust that he cares and he acts personally and particularly for each of us. Personally and particularly for each of us. Look at verse 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Now, this is David's testimony based upon his life of walking with God a life that he faced many troubles and distresses and trials. He faced his own deep failures for which he had to repent of. He faced all sorts of problems within his family life and with this his kingdom. But this is his confidence. His confidence. That God cared for him personally and particularly. And that's the same confidence that we can have as Christians. That Christ cares for us personally and particularly. And, and really in, in three ways that David mentions here that we can identify with. First, verse 7, I want us to appreciate, to believe, appropriate that Christ gives us a preserving kind of care in all of our times of trouble. Now, the word preserving there includes the idea of restoring us and reviving us, uh, bringing back our strength, uh, keeping us going giving us power not to quit. Clearly, life can be overwhelmingly hard 
Jesus said to Paul, but my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. The troubles that you and I experience are never greater than the power of the grace of Christ for us and with us and in us. We can also claim the great promise of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 to 31. Christ gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for Christ will regain their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, this also applies to Christ protecting us when you and I are unjustly under attack. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, has it ever happened in your employment situation when you got chewed out by a boss and it wasn't right, it wasn't fair, it wasn't honest, it was a kind of double dealing? Have you ever been stabbed in the back by someone you thought was a friend? Have you ever been undermined? Have you ever had a child be obstreperous with you and, and, and basically blast you with language you thought would never, you know, they say, curls the pain on the wall? Have you ever had these kinds of things that broke your heart, distressed you because people were angry with you and it wasn't fair and it wasn't right? Those things can destroy you. But we see the promise here in verse 7 that Christ will be with us in these circumstances. Part of the great mess of the world is how unfairly and how unjustly people actually treat one another. But here's the perspective we find in Christ. The Apostle Paul has given it to us. How do we put human conflict in its proper perspective when we as Christians are being treated unjustly? Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said about these human struggles, hateful human beings, being, human beings being awful toward us. He said they're not actually a struggle with human beings as such. They're not actually a struggle with flesh and blood. But he said this, it's a struggle with the schemes of the devil against the rulers. It's a struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Christ authorized Paul to say to us, when we as Christians are suffering uh, the evil, the animosity, the malice of people around us who are treating us unjustly and unfairly, we can look beyond the human agency to see a deeper and darker agency at work. And Christ has promised to deliver us and to protect us and to take care of us under those conditions. The Apostle Peter put it this way. 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 to 10, he said, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences are suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. Yeah, we all go through this. After you have suffered a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, the right hand of Christ delivers us. And how are we delivered? by sanctifying things God does in us, by perfecting us, by confirming us, by strengthening us, by establishing us in our faith and in our walk 
with Christ. Notice you're treated unjustly. He doesn't promise you justice. You're treated unfairly. He doesn't promise you fairness. What he promises is that in the midst of this, he can and will deliver you from evil retaliation, words that you shouldn't say, a temper that shouldn't flare. He will, in fact, work in you to strengthen you and to confirm you and to perfect you. The God of all glory wants this to happen in you, to take these afflicting times and to find that he sanctifies unto you your deepest distress. Then we look at verse 8. The other side of this uh, great care of Christ, particularly and personally, is found in verse 8. Christ acts personally in his care for us and that he is the one who will fulfill his own purposes in our lives. Now that's a comforting word, a comforting truth that can sustain us, especially when all of life seems so very, very confusing. It is a statement that Christ is in control. And he's in control over our lives. He's guiding. He's directing, even when things seem like a dense black fog. The New Testament... uh, teaches these kinds of things in a number of different places in a number of ways. But to use David's own words to illustrate, to guide us, think first of David's last petition. He says, do not forsake the work of your hands. Now, remember, all of the Psalms are poetry. So we read the poetic language and we say, what is he literally expressing there? Well, whenever we see a do not forsake, we know that it really is going to say, God, please remember. (laughs) Do not forsake is to be forgotten by God. So really he's praying, God, please do remember the works of your hands, of which David considered himself one of them. I tell you as a Christian, I pray often, God, don't forget me. (laughs) Please keep your eye on me. Uh, Today, remember me. And that's what David is praying. His last prayer is once again a plea for God's divine help. But why does he pray this? Why is he confident that he can pray this? It's because of what he says just before that. It's the fact that he's trusting in God's steadfast love. Now, that particular word in the Hebrew uh, means God's covenantal love. It's sometimes translated uh, loving kindness. It's sometimes translated uh, the mercies of God. But essentially, it's the kind of love that's expressed when God makes a covenant to his people. I will be your God. And David is trusting in that, and we trust in that in Christ. The reason why we know ultimately that God is going to remember us, he's not going to forget us, is because of the steadfast love. And the wonderful New Testament promise expressed by the Apostle Paul in this regard, is this. Philippians 1.6, where the Apostle said to the people at Philippi that by the inspiration of God in Christ, he was confident of this very thing. He, God, the Father, who began a good work in you, would carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why do you know God won't forget you? Because God and Christ has promised that what he has begun in you, he is going to continue. He's going to carry it on and he is going to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Appropriating the promise of God that he doesn't forget those that he has claimed as his own in and through his son. But then the first part of verse 8, where David confidently says, the Lord will accomplish his purposes for me. We as Christians can say, Christ will fulfill 
his purposes for me. But I know that for many people, when we ask the question, well, what is God's purpose for me? Uh, find themselves struggling. Um, uh, if you're in college or still thinking about your career, you're going, what is your purpose for me in terms of my job, my profession, my career? What am I supposed to do with my life? We will ask that kind of a question. It can happen in terms of the midpoint crisis. Uh, what do they call it for men when they buy the red sports car? The midlife crisis. What is God's purpose for me? We find it at the cusp of the end of our regular career trajectory. You know, retirement. What is God's purpose for me? It happens again and again and again. When a wife and a mother has finished raising her children, what is God's purpose for me? We, we find this to be an existential and relevant kind of question. But I want to tell you something from Scripture. Those concerns, as large as they are to us, are secondary to God. Secondary doesn't mean they're not important. But God has a primary commitment to his purpose for you. And it's a twofold purpose. It has, first of all, to do with the kind of person you are to be. And secondly, to the kind of influence you are to have in this world. The Apostle Paul specifies the kind of person you are to be in many, many different ways. You know, we could speak of, uh, in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. All those qualities. We could speak of 1 Corinthians 13. All of the characteristics of love. But all of that is summed up in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where Paul says to believers... Whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, the phrase, conformed to the image of his Son. God's purpose for you as a Christian is to become conformed to the image of his son. His purpose for you is that you would become that kind of human being. Ultimately summed up, as Jesus taught, in the two greatest commandments, that you would be a person who would love the living God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you would be the kind of person who would love his or her neighbor even as you love yourself. The image of Christ, Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Having that attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus though he existed in the very form of God, did not think equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and he took the very form of a servant. What kind of person has God purposed for us to be? The kind of person whose character is conformed to the image and character of Christ where loving God is foremost. And what is second and like the first is loving our neighbors as ourselves so that we come into this world in order to serve, which links then, then to the second thing we find about purpose in the New Testament. And that is the kind of influence God purposes for us to have in this world. Now that is stated powerfully 
in a broad and general sense, but clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where we are reminded after we're given the most critical element about salvation, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, for we who have been saved in this way are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them. I want to close with this and just remind you. Your purpose, your greatest purpose in life, in living unto the glory of Christ, is to be the kind of human being that finds in every day, guided by Christ, some manner, some method, some proper way to do good to other human beings. You don't know necessarily as a day begins what that might look like. But God desires His people to have their great impact in this world not by doing some great things, but by every day doing the good works that he has beforehand prepared for them to walk in. Let me close with two stories. Um, it was the first year that Julie and I were in Bakersfield, more specifically in Oildale. More specifically, uh, Middledale, which isn't as bad as Lower Oildale. Uh, not nearly like Upper Oildale, Middledale, where uh, a police uh, sheriff's uh, car came up to us one day as we were pulling into our little backyard apartment. Uh, and stopped us and looked at my wife's Camry and said, what are you doing in this neighborhood? We said, what do you mean? And he just went on to describe that uh, you all don't look like you fit in this neighborhood uh, because of uh, the meth uh, production going on even in middle Oildale at this time. In that context... One afternoon, Julie and I, uh, going uh, east on Norris Road, pulled up to Airport Drive. I look out her window and I see a pickup truck. And I see a lady driving it, maybe 30 years of age, short hair spiked. And she has one of those big, thick collars on that's studded, silver studs all the way around it. And then popped up into her lap, looking out her left-hand window, was a little bulldog. The same identical collar all around this little dog's neck. And I said to Julie, doesn't that just prove what we've always heard, that dogs and their owners begin to look alike? <laughs> and, and she looked at me shocked. And she said, that's what you see? You don't see in her the image of God? I tried to laugh it off. But my wife, who is often the assistant to the Holy Spirit, wouldn't let go of it. And it caused me to reflect upon someone who is a spiritual hero in my book. Johnny Erickson Tata. You may not know who she is, but she was 
paralyzed uh, around the time of her graduation from high school in the neck, has lived her life as a quadriplegic. And for many years she struggled with that, trying to understand what is God's purposes for me. And God has used her to be the uh, most incredible advocate for the disabled in the world. God has used her tremendously. She was on the stage with Billy Graham any number of times. She was a guest at the White House. She has been used tremendously, tremendously, tremendously of God. But I remember her saying one time that she said, why do people who work in stores wear name tags? And then she said, why do you need to note those name tags? She said, every time you go through a store line, one of the good things that God has prepared and foreordained for you to do is to speak to that person with his or her name and give her an encouraging greeting. And you will have done, even that day, something of what God expects you to do in terms of his good works. Because Christ has known you by your name. And it is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to know others by their names, and to honor them as human beings created in the image of God when you do so. Anne Warren in her hymn has a line in which she says, uh, wondering about her purposes in life, how often we are seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. And she finishes the stanza by saying to God, I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. That's Christ's promise to you. That if we have this heart that's oriented toward Christ in prayer, if we have great confidence that Christ and this whole world is under his control, then we can believe and trust that he has his personal and particular care over our lives and enable us to reflect him in the good works we do in treating other human beings as created in God's image. May we do so. Let's pray. Father, help us, we would ask, uh, to be all that you would want us to be because of Jesus. Cause us to look more like him. Cause us to be more like him so that the name of Jesus will be lifted up and glorified for his sake, not our own, but for his sake. Amen.